everyone, welcome back after a few weeks off, and in between, the world has been shaken, and I think a lot of us are probably reeling from what's happened recently, and awaiting the effects of this earthquake in full force. So we've been told by our recent president-elect that we need to come together and bind the wounds of the nation. I'm, I'm kind of behind that 90%, but it's hard not to hear the words of the prophets in the background that warn of those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. So there's a kind of coming together that's actually smoothing over deeper problems so that we can pretend they're not there. Inter- interestingly, in, in Jeremiah, when he refers to that phrase, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. So the people were putting a band-aid on this gangrenous foot. And then in uh, Ezekiel, uses the same phrase. So this, this phrase, peace, peace, when there is no peace, occurs three times in the prophets. And Ezekiel sounds even more relevant. He says, and when anyone tries to build a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So, where have we heard of building a wall recently? So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. Then the prophet goes on to describe how God's going to consume this wall in his wrath. Okay, had that rant. On that positive note, let's turn toward our episode today. Folks, we have a legend today, Mark S. Smith of Princeton Theological Seminary. I got to know Mark when I was a junior research fellow at the uh, Albright Institute in Jerusalem doing my doctoral studies at Emory. Mark and his wife Liz were both there, and they are just great. They they joke around a ton, but together they're like an unstoppable ancient Israelite force. So Liz does archaeology, and Mark does the text study, ancient Near East stuff. Um, Mark, Mark used to, when he was at the Albright, he used to take every single journal off the shelf, peruse it, and note down any articles that he needed to read. So he kind of systematically worked his way, whole way through the library. So if you're ever doing any research, you don't need to Google, you can just ask Mark if he knows any resources on X, and he probably does. That's why in the interview I asked Mark about the library at, at Princeton Seminary, which, by the way, has one3 3 million books and microforms just in theology imagine okay before we get to the interview I want to thank all of you for your feedback for sharing this podcast around the information superhighway and for listening so if you haven't had the chance to go on to iTunes and give us a review that would be helpful or just share the word around with your friends and grandparents. So if any of you are going to the annual SBL meeting in San Antonio, which I can't make it this year, but make sure you tackle my co-host Matt Bates and tell him you appreciate what he's doing. Okay, let's go to the interview. Hello on Scripters. I'm here today with Mark S. Smith. Mark is professor of Old Testament literature and exegesis at Princeton Theological Seminary. He has master's degrees from Catholic University of America, Harvard, and Yale, and then a PhD from Yale. He's the author of 15 books and over 100 articles. His books include The Early History of God, The Origins of Biblical Monotheism, God in Translation, and most recently, Where the Gods Are, Spatial Dimensions of Anthropomorphism in the Biblical World. And perhaps more notably, he's married to Liz Blocksmith, who is an archaeologist. Mark, thanks for joining OnScript. Very glad to join you. So how's how's Princeton treating you? Princeton's treating me great. It's been a great start. I miss some people at New York University where I used to teach, 16 years there. But uh, so far, I'm very happy at Princeton Seminary. And, and are you uh, able to peruse the library on a regular basis? Uh, I've not done as much as I would like. Uh, I've been extremely busy since starting. Uh, it's it's um, 
you know, it's like moving to a small town. You're trying to learn everybody's names and meet people, not only the people you meet in class, students, but also lots of other students. And, of course, there's a huge number of faculty and administrators that are part of the community as well. Yeah. And you and Liz are working on the Hermenea Judges Commentary as well at this time, right? That is correct. And, and does, does Liz, ha- um, does she like as many footnotes as you do? That's a good question. Um, is she like, no, we, we don't need a footnote when we say, you know, the, the book of Judges is the, the sixth book in the Bible. Right. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, she probably, she does say sometimes that information that I like to put in footnotes, if it's worth saying it ought to be in the body of the text. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's a bit of a tangent away from that what's going on in the body of the text, so I don't mind putting that in a footnote. But that's a that's yeah. not much of a big difference. Yeah. So it says on your Wikipedia page that you know when you did your grad grad work at Harvard and then PhD at Yale, you studied uh, with some very prominent biblical and ancient Near Eastern scholars. So who who would you say uh, had the greatest impression upon you, and who who lit the Ugaritic fire under Mark Smith? Yeah, so certainly Marvin Pope was hugely formative for me. He was my advisor at Yale, and I learned, I took three years of Ugaritic with Marvin, and of course he had major biblical interests. He kept his Ugaritic and Bible separate sometimes, and yet he brought them together sometimes, so he had a good sense of both their difference and comparability. Um, And I think Marvin... Marvin was a great influence, not only for all of his technical knowledge and range, which was phenomenal. He'd memorized a huge number of texts, but also because he he was not afraid to explore, sometimes even beyond what texts or archaeology or iconography could really tell us and sort of use our imaginations um, a bit, and what's the what's the situation behind the picture that we do have is something that Marvin was willing to explore, and I, I've always appreciated that about him. Um, I would certainly say that my other teachers at Yale, Franz Rosenthal, Bill Hallow, Brevard Child, Bob Wilson, provided you know, really important uh, other ways of thinking and other corpora of literature for me to, um, to gain and to appreciate. Um, before I was at Yale, as you noted, I was at Harvard, and Frank Cross was my uh, advisor there. And, of course, many people who read my books on divinity or other aspects of ancient Israel can rightly see the impact of Cross's work on my own research. Um, so in, in many ways, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm very indebted to Cross as well. And again, I had wonderful other teachers at, uh, at Harvard, Bill Moran in Assyriology and Tom Lambden in Hebrew and Comparative Semitics and Aramaic and um, Michael Coogan in Archaeology, as well as a number of New Testament scholars. And all of them really, really contributed a huge piece to you know, what we would generically call not our skill sets, but even more ways of thinking about material. I also had great teachers at Catholic University, Pat Skian, who was one of the original members of the international team entrusted with the publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as Aloysius Fitzgerald and Joe Fitzmaier. And I also studied for a year uh, while I was writing my dissertations. Both Liz and I studied for a year at the Hebrew University, and there, Jonas Greenfield uh, was my teacher for two courses uh, over the whole year. So I, I've been inordinately fortunate in, in, in the teachers whom I had. And I, even later, after I finished, I worked British tutorial style with John Strugnell mm. on Dead Sea Scrolls. So I've really been very, very blessed, I would say. What would you say are are the the driving themes that run through all of your scholarship? Uh, certainly, 
if you read or look at most of the books that I've worked on have a lot to do with gods and goddesses and with the God of the Bible. Um, and certainly grappling with divinity is something that informs all of these sorts of works, whether it's biblical or Ugaritic separately or the two in tandem. These have been sort of my two major corpora of literature that I've worked on and worked with and provide something of a framework for the way I think about uh, other sources as well without trying to reduce what you see in one corpus to another. Um, I would say that certainly one driving theme for me in the study of divinity is that we need to be able to appreciate, study and appreciate the complexity of all these various sources. Even the Bible is very, very complex in its representation of divinity and that that's, that's important to recover if we're really going to have a biblical sense of the God of Israel. And I think that that often gets short-circuited as people want to move into post-biblical concerns, which I understand, but I think part of what biblical scholarship is is supposed to be doing is recovering as broad and deep an array of biblical features as possible, and that includes those dimensions of divinity, which we don't always appreciate. And it's complex. I think the other part, in addition to the complexity, is to realize how much the Bible is in the ancient Near East. We, we used to get books that would talk about the Bible and the ancient Near East, as if the Bible didn't exist in the ancient Near East. It had this own sort of literary bubble beyond time and place, and it wasn't really in the ancient Near East. And I think that it's impossible to understand divinity in, in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament without seeing, situating that divinity in this larger picture. This doesn't mean that everything that in the Bible is just reducible to things outside of the Bible, but... At the same time, seeing these features outside the Bible helps us understand them better and also helps us appreciate what specifically is going on with such features that are in the Hebrew Bible. So you've mentioned conceptions of divinity several times here. And so what would you say are the perceptions that uh, you encounter about divinity in the Bible or ancient Near East that are most in need of challenge? I mean, certainly one that's in cha- that needs to be challenged and explored and appreciated is what fundamentally about divinity in the Hebrew Bible is also very much in texts outside of the Bible and that what ancient Israel says in the Bible about God is has a real tradition lying behind it that's in other sources, often earlier sources, and that this is this goes to the heart of who the deity is. So one of the you know, I mentioned Frank Cross earlier, one of Frank Cross's great contributions was to show something that had already been noticed by an awful lot of scholars, but he really put it together in a very powerful synthesis, is how much the picture of the God of Israel is indebted in its basic stuff, we might even say, to the understanding of of other gods in Israel's own environment. In other words, the God of Israel, even as it's being proclaimed as being different from all the other gods, at the same time is invested with the imagery and even titles that are associated with other gods. Um, And that for Cross, this was not simply because they happen to be comparable, which is the way people might think that that's the way we ought to look at it, but there's something of the very stuff of the God of Israel that, that, in some sense, comes from these deities. Let me give you one example. Many scholars think that um, originally Yahweh was a warrior storm god, 
because the oldest passages about God in the Bible, according to biblical scholarship, are a handful of poems that are embedded in places like Judges 5, Psalm 68, another number of other uh, compositions, which present Yahweh as marching as a warrior storm god from his southern home down somewhere in, we say Sinai often in the Bible, but it's also called Edom and Paran and Seir. Now, if that's the oldest depiction of who Yahweh is, then there's some other evidence in the Bible which is important to consider. One is all the material that is depicted about Yahweh that looks an awful lot not like a storm warrior god, but like an old patriarchal god. And this old patriarchal god in the Ubertic text is known as Ael. And in fact, in the Bible, several places depict God, quote-unquote God, as if he were Ael. So if Yahweh is originally a stormy warrior god, the language and imagery and, and the even titles, God is called Ael at many points, or Ael, you know, with very other various other terms, Ael Olam, eternal Ael, or God, or Ael Shaddai, translated God Almighty. Then for Cross, this would have suggested, or at least the approach broached by Cross would have suggested that the ale language and imagery and epithets accrue to Yahweh secondarily. Now, let me, let me quickly add a point. For Cross, actually, Yahweh's original portrait was he thought he was, he was a god originally like ale. And that the Baal language, the stormy warrior stuff, in a sense, that had accrued to Yahweh, that's what he thought was secondary to Yahweh. But either way, one set or another, whatever your hypothesis is about the origins of Yahweh, one set of imagery or another, whether it's a Baal or of ale, became part of the stuff of the divinity of Yahweh. And these are not just general traits. These are actually things like actual titles. It's very specific language. It's not just sort of general material. So this is, this was, this was Cross's, Cross developed this notion and, uh, very much, uh, Yahweh, um, the early history of God, Yahweh's and the other deities in ancient Israel or in the biblical world, that this is, this is very much picking up on Cross's insight and trying to develop it. Not only to Ale and to Baal, but to some degree even with figures like the goddess Anat, um, where the language of the goddess Asherah fits into that picture, some of the language of some of the other deities, so that one can see a broad, what one might call, convergence of imagery of divinity from a variety of deities being taken up and incorporated into the character of Yahweh, even at the same time as Yahweh is being differentiated as the only God of Israel. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's possible to determine which is primary, the Ale conception or the Yahweh conception? Or are, you, or are we talking about two simultaneous phenomena that eventually, in some way that we don't know, come together? Well, it is it is hard to say. Um, I think that when I started out early on, I was more sympathetic to Cross's view, um, and that is that that Yahweh is more like Ale. I've never though cared much for his hypothesis about the development of the name of Yahweh as kind of an Ale title. It's very hypothetical. It was, it was, it's been severely criticized by people like Arthur Gibson in his book, Biblical Semantic Logic, and others uh, have also criticized this view. Um, but it is the amount of ale material in the Hebrew Bible for Yahweh is actually quite substantial. I suppose I started to lean in the direction of the stormy warrior god picture that's somewhat parallel, at least with Baal, because... That's the picture in the oldest text that we have in the Hebrew Bible. As I mentioned before, Judges 5, Psalm 68, and other passages. 
having said that, I think it's probably true that there's just a lot that we don't know that is scholars don't know, not because we don't, we don't work hard enough at it, but simply because we're lacking data, some pretty big data. So I think it's rather difficult to resolve the question clearly in one direction or another. So let's talk about your book, Where the Gods Are. And okay. in, in the first chapter of your book, you talk about the three bodies of God. So you have the the human-like body where God encounters people uh, as a human being in a body that's sized about probably what a regular human would look like. Then you talk about a supersized human-like body that we see represented in the the temple and some of the imagery around the temple where you have a, a large throne for God. And then you talk about the the kind of cosmic uh, or heavenly body of God where he's – we can't tell exactly the the relationship between the the physicality of of that body and and a human body, but he's enthroned in heaven uh, and ruling over the cosmos. So could you talk a little bit about the differences between those bodies of God and why you talk that way about the nature of God in the Hebrew Bible? Well, I talk that way because it's in the Bible. <laughs> but to um, say more, it's, it's, it has struck me that not only are these different sorts of bodies in the Hebrew Bible, but also that they seem to be constructed or represented in tandem with other important Features One is, as the title of the book suggests, is related to place and space. Um, and as a further corollary of place and space is the sort of relationship that each body is expressing uh, between divinity and humanity. So the, I, I'm not worried or that concerned about thinking about these different bodies as being, you know, that they contradict one another somehow or they pose a a sort of a problem for theological propositions, more that I think that often with biblical passages, it's important to ask um, what's what's the significance of, of representing God in these different ways. And so the three bodies give us what we might call a more kaleidoscopic view of who God is for ancient Israel and that they're not that that those different modalities of who God is in relation to human beings um, are not incompatible with one another it just might seem that way in in a surface examination of the three you know you might say it's terribly difficult to reconcile a human scale body of God excuse me with a superhuman size body of God, and that's also difficult to uh, reconcile with a you know what might be a cosmic size or scale body of God. But I think what they're doing is they're 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 telling us a number of different things beyond just the question of the body um, that has to do with the relationship between. Um, God and Israel or God and humanity. So the first body, the first body of God, which is a very traditional picture. We see it in the Eucharistic texts already. Um, This is a case where the deity comes to the home of a human being and offers a gift often, um, often eats at the home of the human being, uh, eats and drinks. This is what Abraham does when, I mean, offers food to God in Genesis um, 18, and, and God and the, the two other men, as they're called, initially they're called three men, and then Genesis 19.1 clarifies that two of them are angels, and we're supposed to then understand in light of that verse that it, these three men, as they're called at the beginning of chapter 18, are God and two angels, uh, but they sit and they eat, and there's no reason to think from, from the description there that they're being represented as anything other than as 18.1 refers to them as three men. So 
There the point is, has to do with Abraham's special relationship. God only does this, and I would say this is true even in Ugaritic, what everyone thinks of as Canaanite myth, um, is that this is done for, or, for uh, favored, famous uh, people in the past. This is not something that happens to everybody or in general, um, but it marks particular divine favor with respect to those figures. Uh, and the scale of those figures matches the place in which this takes place, which is namely in the home. It's going to be hard to have a cosmic-sized body sit down and eat at your home. Maybe at your house, Matt. But well, no. you know, um, some of us live a little more privileged life than others. But yeah, and you and you are blessed. So um, yeah, so it says something about the special relationship that Abraham has with God, um, and also about the gift that God wants to give to Abraham, which is the promise of the son that he's going to get. Uh, er, in an earlier Canaanite text, the story of Akat, the craftsman god comes to the home of the hero. That's Akat's father, Don-il. Akat is not yet born. and Oh, no, he is born at that point. It's probably quite young, though, still. It's not clear because the text is broken. But anyway, Kothar Wachasis brings a gift of bow and arrows to Don-il. So this is, this is the, the purpose of the divine visit in large measure is the gift. And it's certainly in the biblical context, it's also a reflection of divine favor. The second body is really very different. Instead of the deity coming to the home of the hero or the human person, in the second body of God, which is the superhuman-sized body of God, characteristically, it's experienced in temples. And temples are the places that humans go to because it's the divine home. So the idea there is that Human persons go to the temple. We'd say they go on pilgrimage to the temple in sort of the ideal pattern. Um, and that they come to, they go to the divine king's house. And the divine king's house is bigger than a human house. And it matches the size, in a sense, of the deity being represented as superhuman in size. In this picture, human beings come to the temple regarded as the palace of this divine king, and they are coming to bring their offerings, which are a kind of religious form of tribute to this divine king as a, as a measure of thanks being offered to this divine king. And so the divine king is enthroned on his, on his cherub throne, for example, in the Jerusalem temple, which is itself superhuman in size. It's understood to be superhuman in size. And this is the large size God, which Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And in that scene, the body of God fills the temple. It's not this physical thing that eats and drinks human food, but it's a kind of body of uh, perhaps kavod, um, often translated glory. I always like uh, Joe Blankensops, I think it's his translation, the effulgence of the God, something really quite present, not an abstraction as glory might seem to some people today, but something that's really, really there, and yet, um, and yet something that is uh, not a physical, fleshy body. It's like a body of, of light, Kavod is sort of associated with light sometimes, and um, it's, it is a body that's perceptible because in the first verse of that chapter, the prophet says that I saw the Lord. And so it is a perceptible body, and yet it's not a physical, fleshy body of human scale, but it is a superhuman-sized one. Uh, I've often imagined, based on different lines of evidence that this is bodies around, I don't know, 50 or 60 feet tall. Yeah, I think you said 65 feet in the book. 65 I, in the book. I, I think that's, is that to date the first measurement of God's, the size, how big God is? Uh, I, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's based on a bunch of things. One is that, you know, if, if you think of how big the cherubim throne is, God's seated on it. Imagine God standing up. God's got to be really huge, um, and and if 
the other thing that I think has impressed an awful lot of scholars is the analogy that they would take from seeing what's going on at another temple, not the Jerusalem temple, but a temple up in Syria, at a site called Ain Dara. And in Ain Dara, what you find is not only a temple that is somewhat generally structured like the Jerusalem temple's description in the books of Kings, but uh, what's included at Ain Dara are these meter-sized footprints that are thought to, and there's several of them, and they're thought to represent the footprints of the deity because they're a meter. You know, if you know if you had a meter of footprints, it's over three feet. Your foot was over three feet. I mean, you could do more than just play in the NBA or the NFL. I mean, these are some pretty big. This is pretty big footprints. So, if you if you extrapolate from how big these feet are to how big the body of that god is imagined or goddess, it's not entirely clear. If you imagine what the scale is, I think you're you're up in the sixty foot range. Uh, in any case, <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, this is a rather different sort of body. It's an imagined body, and yet it's sort of understood as having a kind of physical trace to it. I know it's sort of a funny way of thinking about it, but they they depict the the trace of what the deity leaves by way of footprint impression. So it's a different sort of body, and yet it is a body as well. And they use the language of body uh, for the deity in this case. So, but it, it it really expresses, in a sense, the presence of God among the people, and yet also the kingship, the enthronement of this warrior king who's come back from battle, defeated the enemies of Israel ideally speaking, and, and taken up his throne on his supersized uh, uh, chair there in the temple. Hmm. Well, one of the questions I had was you you didn't include in passages talking about the body of God some of the priestly literature in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, do you want to talk about why you excluded that? I mean, given that there is a cherubim thrown there, um, why there wouldn't be a wouldn't have been a bodily conception? Yeah, I I I've struggled with this quite a bit. Um, there's a there's an interesting difference between uh, the priestly material in the Pentateuch and other priestly material, and we'll talk a little bit later about Ezekiel one. Uh, Ezekiel one actually uses body language in right. its in its real cosmic or or transcendent body, this third type of body of God, but there are no body terms actually used in priestly passages in the Pentateuch. And this has always uh, been a problem for talking about the body of God in priestly Pentateuchal material. Um, Some other scholars have suggested that when the priestly passages are talking about the kavod of God, uh, these priestly passages in the Pentateuch presuppose a body for God, or they presuppose that kavod means or refers itself to body. Um, I don't really think that that's quite right, or it doesn't strike me as right based on looking at the passages. They use kavod as a fulgence, but without reference to the um, to actual body language. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like it's like it's like if you press to the center of that kavod, you're just a, at a glowing light, right? There's no there's no body in the center. Like that, so yeah. that I I don't um, I, I mean for me a body is going to um, you know uh, a body without reference to human body or body parts to my mind does not really make a body. Mm-hmm. For, for the ancients, or even by modern, you know, English definition. If you look up definition in, in dictionaries, it's often in relation to the structure and content of human bodies. So when I don't see that language, which I don't see in priestly pentateuchal passages, um, I've got a question there about whether it's really the case. And I think in fact, what priestly pentateuchal material is doing is it's it's getting away from some of the implicit 
anthropomorphism perhaps suggested by such language of body and body parts that are found in other passages in the Pentateuch that are not P passages. Um, so it, it may be that the priestly Pentateuchal material is doing that for a reason, and it's important to not reduce or conform priestly Pentateuchal material to other parts of the Bible, even to the priestly text of Ezekiel. I think they're going in different directions on this, and both of them are getting away from the second body of God. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting difference between the priestly Ezekiel material and priestly Pentateuchal material is the willingness to at least talk about the likeness of a body in Ezekiel, right? Right. So in Ezekiel one, you have you have this this chariot of God, which is a tr- actually a very traditional image for God with his second body, you know, flying around this chariot that can fly around the heavens, according to Psalm eighteen. It's the same text as 2 Samuel 22. Yeah, that's actually an Apache helicopter. Well, you know, who knew? It's not, I don't think Apache is the technical Hebrew term, but oh. maybe I have to look at that text again. Yeah, yeah, it's in BDB. It's in BDB. Yep. Um, it's going to be hard to find that root in BDB, but I'll trust you on that one. Um, so, um, you know, it's a traditional image. Ezekiel 1 is drawing on a traditional image for God's transport on a chariot throne, uh, and it's even called, you know, flying on the wings of the cherub. So in a way, it's it's also, in a sense, literally taking off from the image in the Jerusalem temple, perhaps, imagined as sort of flying through the heavens and then being manifest in the Jerusalem temple. That's still the second body. What Ezekiel 1 does is really we might say really riffs off of that image, but really transforms it at the same time. It makes, it puts this chariot thrown up on top of the firmament rather than on the clouds or the wings of the wind. And so it's, it's, it's relocating God's uh, body, we might say, to a very different sort of um, real estate, namely up on the firmament and not just down on earth at the temple. And there's a way in which this chariot with its, its various, it, it, it's, the description is trying to implode, uh, any sort of normal human experience in the way that it talks about the chariot being, it's got, it's got four sets of animals pushing, uh, pushing it or pulling it in all different directions potentially. Are and each the 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 wheels on this chariot have eyeballs in them, so it's a way of God saying uh, it's a way of saying that God sees everything. But they're they're doing this in a way that you know is no unlike any human chariot. I mean, there are not a lot of human chariots that can that have four different kinds of animals that seem to represent different uh, geographical directions. Um, it'd be a nice chariot to have, and that's maybe your your hovercraft of some sort. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk to the, get back to the Apache people. Well, about I think it's some, it might be something Russia is developing right now. Um, well, they read Ezekiel and they get it They're behind the curve on that one. So um, this body up in the firmament, it it you know it's gonna it's it's probably somehow in a sense commensurate. With the firmament itself, it may be that it's, it's you know, I, I don't want to call it virtually infinite in size. It's not, we don't have a clear description, but we are told in some passages that the heavens cannot contain right. God. And it does intimate, such passages do intimate that, that this cosmic God is somehow physically, you might put that in quotation marks, but physically cannot be encompassed by the heavens and therefore is in some sense cosmic in scope at least, if not in scale. Mm. Um, and at the same time, if you, if you have this picture of God being enthroned in heaven, that's also, you, you have a picture that is a bit more, um, focalized. Right. And so, the, and this, this is really an important image of who God is because this is, what eventuates into a pretty standard notion of who God is or looks like in, you know, Jewish and Christian depictions. You know, you think of last judgment scenes in the New Testament. There's God up in heaven, 
you know, judging everyone, etc. Um, but it does, it does, it, it, in a way, it is like the second body, but transposed to the up into the heavens, which has antecedents in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Micaiah ben Imla in 1 Kings 22 also sees God up in heaven. And so it's, it's a kind of modification of the second body, uh, in a sense. Um, so these are three really different bodies that say some important yet different things about who God is. Yeah. And I think, and this is something that came out in your book that in, each of those cases, they're all saying something about the similarity between God and humans and differences between God and humans. Sure. And, I mean, certainly the cosmic one at the most extreme end, and then even even the human portraits of God, you have, um, like, when, when God comes in as the... Um, I'm thinking about when Jacob wrestles this man who's an angel who's also a way of seeing God face to face. There's there's a kind of slippage between whether this is God or human. And then similarly with the three visitors, the ones called, they're all called men at the beginning, Anashim at the beginning, but then we find out that one of them's God. So there's, there's that similarity, man, but then difference, God or angel or Yahweh. So... Yeah. I mean, I think generally what a lot of anthropomorphic language does do is it's not simply trying to intimate similarity. It's it's trying to express communication between deity and human. That is, this is, and the body doesn't only express communication. I mean, we might say... It, it, that is, it doesn't only express verbal communication, but it also conveys all the things that body language can convey to humans about God, uh, qualities that the deity has. Um, and it also, there is, as you say, quite a lot of slippage in the imagery, the sort of human-like imagery for the deity, um, which um, becomes, you know, if you read these passages closely, they want to disclose other things about the deity. They almost the bodies of God or the presentations of the bodies of God become sort of these textual opportunities to explore what is in fact quite remarkable about the deity in contrast sometimes to human beings. I mean, to, to use just one example... Go back to the example with, with God and Abraham in Genesis 18 becomes a meditation, you know, after God and the angels, the three men eat and drink, um, there's this God and Abraham walk together and we see this great bargaining down. Abraham wants God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham bargains him down if you find 50 40, 30, et cetera, all the way down to 10. If you, if you find even 10, uh, righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you just, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And, and, and God basically goes along with Abraham's bargain. But what's, what's often missed, everybody sort of gets that. What they sort of miss is that somehow God manages not only to be merciful to the righteous, but it still manages to judge the wicked because, in fact, the the alleged righteous are, are you know, they are escorted out of town and Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. So, in fact, both mercy and justice are rendered in this passage. So people often miss this point about reading the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And even in the case of the so-called righteous, you know, God does this in a sense as a favor to Abraham, not only because Abraham is asking, but also because, you know, uh, you know, Lot and, and, and the rest of the family are not the most righteous looking people. As, as you read the rest of the story afterwards, Lot gets drunk and his daughters have sex with him. And it's not the most righteous uh, picture at the end of the day. So in a way, God, God exceeds 
God exceeds the expectation that the text sets up, both for um, both for mercy and for justice, in a sense. And uh, so these texts, which do present the bodies of God, also allow for a kind of further, we might call textual meditation on who God is beyond human expectation. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about, this is probably just a really obvious thing, the way that those two other messengers who are humans, then they, they kind of, there, there's also a kind of reflection on other divine beings in that passage too, the way that uh, they are, on the one hand, described as men, and then they're malachim, messengers or angels, who have the power to blind people miraculously. Right, you know. right, right. So those... You, you've put your finger on a very good point. Um, that word that's used for blinding these people, sanverim, is uh, only occurs one other place in the Bible, and it's a story. I think it's a is it? It's a, I think it's Elisha, and his servant is worried about the armies of, of Aram, and and Elisha uh, uh, is not really worried about this at all, and and uh, revealed. He sees what is then revealed to the servant, which is the armies of God all around them, and they're going to defeat the Arameans with this blinding light, the San Verim. So we 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 have this sense uh, again. It's sort of as a as a kind of um, you know divine feature yeah. of the yeah. deity uh, that the angels actually, in a sense, sort of tell us. What they're doing in the second chapter of that story with Abraham and God in Genesis 19, where where uh, the angels say that we anachnu mashchitim and mashchitim we always translate it as you know we're about to destroy, which is true in the context. But mashchitim are also it's the word that's used for Philistine SWAT troops. Um, and so we, we've got yet another sort of anthropomorphism built into this picture of these so-called destroying angels. Um, there in the Abraham story or the Sodom and Gomorrah story in chapter 19, I think that's in verse 13 where they say we are about to destroy. Um, and it just sort of shows you the depth of this anthropomorphic language all around in, in those two chapters. It's very sort of thick with that. The, just, you know, no discussion be complete without a footnote. You were teasing me about my footnotes. This word son verim is actually an Akkadian loan word in the Hebrew. It only occurs in these two passages in biblical Hebrew. At least this is, I think, what's in Paul Mankowski's book on the topic, Akkadian loan words into biblical Hebrew or in biblical Hebrew. And it probably gives us some sort of set of the horizons for the composition of these stories. But in any case, um, it's it's uh, it's a dramatically anthropomorphic story, even as it's sort of showing you how these various sorts of divinities, we might say these angels as well as the god, uh, are quite beyond human power or human capacity. Yeah, and it's interesting then in thinking you mentioned you mentioned uh, Elisha and how, in a way, with Elijah and Elisha, the the powers of the Malachim become invested in them, you know, because they there's a similar there's a similar pattern. I've always wondered about this, where they they too go to a place, um, you know, seeking hospitality, and and then there's that kind of prophecy of a son. Yeah. As you mentioned with um, Elisha's powers or perceptions of of these uh, divine beings uh, surrounding the city. So that, I just think there's interesting parallels there with the prophet and the angel in, in those two texts. Yeah, let, let me just uh, try to add a little there. Um, one of the things that I think happens with the first body of God is that the first body of God... You know, you don't see it after the book of Genesis. Yeah. And there's a way in which what seems to be happening, and it's not really exactly clear why it works this way, but divine visitations to homes after the book of Genesis is really taken up in the role of divine messengers. 
So we have the angel that visits Manoah and his wife in Judges 13. Um, and there are a number of these other angels that pop up who visit people. And um, what, what seems to be going on um, is that angels, in a sense, become the way of talking about the, 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 the personal God who would come to your home in earlier stories. Um, and they, of course, have human scale as well, typically. Um, the other feature on the other side, you talking about Elijah and Elisha, is that they've got powers or they, they, they are attributed powers uh, that are considered a bit superhuman. They are not like the prophets of like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the other prophets that have books named after them. It's interesting that they don't have books named after them in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Um, that's another, that's a literary question that's of great interest to me. But in terms of their depiction, they, they are really these very miraculous sort of figures who, who can do all kinds of things. Um, and they, they, for me, they really sort of constitute a bit of a different category from regular old prophets, uh, what one might call sort of holy men who have superhuman powers uh, or are attributed superhuman powers. And in some ways, these powers do remind one of the angelic realm a bit um, without sort of making too much out of that point. I, I, I think it does help to highlight how different they are from, in some respects anyway, from sort of what is, what scholars have called sometimes in the past, I'd put quotations around this, the classical prophets. Um, yeah, and but, I, yeah, sorry, I, well, I was just thinking too that even the classical prophets, there is a sense where they do stand in the divine council to some extent, or they're privy to that council in a way that regular humans aren't. And so they have at least an access to the divine realm that would differ. So it's it, in, in various ways, the prophets become these borderline figures between sure. the divine and human realms. Right. I mean, they're certainly, they, they certainly mediate between the divine and the human. Yeah. Uh, and you might say, well, that's analogous to what angels do. And angels in their own way also mediate between the divine and the human. The, one of the differences, though, is that angels come to your house whereas prophets go to the house of God or, or somewhere. They don't typically, at least as represented in the Bible, they, they are not typically represented as doing this in you know, somebody's private house. So there, there is a little bit of a difference that almost corresponds to these two different bodies of God, the first two bodies of God. But still, they are both mediating figures. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I do want to mention another, another footnote. I want to call your attention to footnote 230 on page 178. And in that footnote, you say, See Matthew Lynch, Monotheism and Institutions in the Book of Chronicles. And I, I think um, that's pretty strong language. And in fact, that's an imperative. That yeah, it's an imperative form. And yeah. it's, I meant to signal that it's actually a plural imperative, although... English doesn't really make that distinction. Yeah. I would have said I would have said that that was probably the most important footnote that I wrote in that entire book. I hope that's clear to readers. I probably should have emphasized that a little bit more. Yeah, I also want to emphasize that it appeared in a really important book series, the Forshung and Zumalton Testament. I don't know. I mean, your book appeared in that incredibly prestigious series. I think people ought to know that. Yeah, it has great editors. Great editors. I guess if you wanted the plural imperative, you could have said, uh, see, see Matthew Lynch, y'all, and then give it the... All the, you nations, see Matthew Lynch. Yeah. All you peoples, clap your hands. Something along those lines. And praise, praise ye yeah. monotheism and institutions in the book of Chronicles. Yeah. I could have done that. I, that was kind of a missed opportunity. That happens when you're writing books, though, sometimes. W would you say, I mean, given given the fact that it's footnote 230, um, which has obvious significance numerically, uh, oh, yeah. would you say that, it, that my book had a profound or a significant effect on your thinking as you went about writing the book? 
You know, I don't think either adjective does justice oh, okay. to the impact of your book. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'd hate to sort of try to pick between the two. Right. Both end. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't want to call attention to my work when I'm doing an interview with you. I just couldn't. I mean, it wasn't a prominent place, so I just thought I'd mention that. Um, anyway, I just I, I want to quickly touch on on your chapter about the way that temples participate in the divinity of deities, because to me that's a really fascinating idea. I mean, it's a subsection of the chapter, uh, like temple, like deities, like temples. Um, and and can you can you talk a bit about the ways that temples? become ways of encountering what a god is like yeah so uh, this this was a a fun chapter to work on actually i worked on it earlier and then i worked on it again for the book um and one of the things that i noticed is is about how temples are described or temple places of deities are described and that in many cases, both in the Bible and in the Ugaritic texts, they are described in the ways that their divine patrons are described. So they are, so deities are described with power, they're described as eternal, they're described as holy, and so are temples. And you realize that temples are even called occasionally divine, and the sense in which they're divine probably comes from the fact that temples, in a sense, partake of, or to use the word that I use in the book, participate in the very these very qualities of the god. That is, it's, it's the fact that these temples belong to the god, it's their palace, and that the god is thought of as coming to these temples, that the temple, in a sense, is infused with the god's own power, the god's own eternity, the god's own holiness. So there's a way in which temples convey these aspects of the god through their own character to people who experience these temples. And in a way, I would say the very physicality of these temples in terms of their scale and their size and their architecture and so on help to engender an experience of the deity as being powerful and holy. So there's a kind of mutual relationship about how the temple is invested with the deity's own qualities, and then in turn how the temple conveys those divine qualities of the god to people who come to the temple. Yeah, and, and I thought it was interesting, too, how that extends to cities uh, as, as well. And you talk about how, in, in some instances, cities are temples writ large, one of the texts to me that's that's always been fascinating since you pointed it out to me back in I think it was 2011 uh, at the at the Albright, but in Psalm 48 uh, verses 12 to 14 it says, "Walk around Zion, go around it, count its towers, consider well its ramparts, go through its citadels, that you may tell the next generation, this is God, this is our God." So you, you have this fascinating walk around Zion and looking at its walls and the power of the strength represented there. And then the author does what seems like a pivot to talk about God suddenly, to say this, presumably still pointing to the wall, this is our God. Right. So there's a way in which, just as the temple sort of expresses qualities about the God, I think the city and the city walls are thought of as reflecting who God is for the people who live in the, the city or town. So walls, you know, they and ramparts suggest protection and strength. Um, you know, cities are like a fortress uh, with their walls and their ramparts. So one may think of, you know, Psalm 46, which is the basis of Luther's famous hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. So because in a way, then the city becomes, in its own way, analogous to a temple, it, it becomes also a kind of an analogy or a picture of who God is for Israel. It's about the relationship. I mean, you don't obviously think 
uh, you know, God is literally a wall, etc. But there is a way in which, you know, it, 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 it does speak of God's strength and power on behalf of the people living there. So it's Psalm 48 has always sort of fascinated me. It's been a difficult thing to interpret at the end because people are sort of, you know, they're sort of thrown off by that, what you called its pivot to the end. But it seems to me that in its cultural and religious context, strikes me as making eminent sense, even if the grammar throws one off a little bit. Yeah, and it reminded me too of a text in Chronicles where Solomon's building the temple and he says, the temple I'm building ought to be great, Gadol, because Yahweh is greater than all the gods. So that the temple ought to reflect Yahweh's supremacy over the gods, which I, I think is fascinating. No, that's absolutely right. And and I think temples and cities, um, you know, sort of together are sort of performance spaces, stages, religious stages for performing who the deity is for people. And uh, we often sort of think of, you know, by for obvious reasons, you know, the deity, the temple, the, even the city in a sense, that these are sort of religious spaces, but they're, they're sort of used on analogy with rather human experience of, of human drama. I mean, rituals, temple rituals and sacrifices are a kind of script, and temple spaces are a kind of stage, and priests and people even, and even the deity, are religious actors in this drama. And the only real difference between traditional modern drama and, you know, being in the temple is that the people, in a sense, are both, they're both looking on like a regular traditional audience in a, in a, in a play, but in a way they're also participants. So they combine both roles. And it, there's something about the performance of the thing that helps make the thing feel true or feel real. Uh, just as people might find in a very meaningful and well-done religious service today. And uh, part, then, of what these spaces and places do is they contribute to people's sense of the divine, which is really what the book is all about. Hmm. Uh, before we, we close our, our interview, I just wanted to see if you're up for doing a lightning round where I ask you questions and then you've got 30 seconds to answer. Okay, well, I just hope you'll cut me off at 30 seconds. Go ahead. Okay. I'm ready. All right. We, we've touched on this one already, but if you could summarize the relationship between Yahweh and El. Um, it's strong. Okay, good. Uh, what is an Elohim? Well, Elohim is technically the Hebrew plural, but it is sometimes used for the God of Israel. And the question is whether it's a sort of a plural of majesty for this one God, or is it a, uh, a, a kind of a royal we that's being used, a plural? And people debate this point. So did do you think Israel emerged from within the land of Canaan or came in from the outside? I think that some people, maybe even most people, are from the inside or indigenous in some sense. I also think that it's quite possible that one or more lines of what emerges as Israel uh, came from elsewhere, and there could be more than one elsewhere. So we have a tradition of Jacob and his relationship with Aram. We have a tradition about Israelites coming out of Egypt, which I admit, if I have to really say anything about, would strike me as consistent with the line of Moses and Aaron with their Egyptian personal names. That strikes me as coming out of this sort of Egyptian context. But I would say it was probably much more complex than has been put down in scholarly literature. What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years, in your opinion, besides your books and, and mine? Well, I was going to say yours, yep, so yep. you've already preempted. Um, well, boy, it's hard to pick out one. I sort of do it by decade. I thought that Cross's Canaanite myth and Hebrew epic probably had the most impact in the 70s. I thought that um, uh, Brevard Child's Old Testament uh, big 
the big fat book. Introduction to the Old Testament of Scripture. Yes, introduction yeah. to the Old Testament yeah. of Scripture had massive impact, but so did Buzzy Fish, uh, Michael Fishbane's Biblical Interpretation in Ancient Israel. Certainly those three books have had really, really major uh, impact. What do you think's one of the most underappreciated books in biblical studies? I think it was that title by that guy, Lynch. <laughs> Under, no, 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 it's gotten tons of publicity. Okay, well, I, I still don't think that's enough. Yeah. Uh, one book that sort of seems to have not gotten much attention is Paul Kalu Vitil's book. He, he did a book on covenant under his advisor, Dennis McCarthy. McCarthy's book on covenant is really famous, but I think, I think there's a way in which Kalu Vitil's book um, goes further than McCarthy's book in recognizing that biblical covenant extends to really all levels of social organization and interaction from, you know, Anything that sort of, in a sense, establishes relationship across family lines can be called covenant in biblical Hebrew. And he wrote this, and it sort of wasn't really picked up, and then Cross independently comes up with this in his second collection of essays from Epic to Canon, and then people pick up on it. But Colin Butil's book, I don't think, quite got the attention that it deserved, at least at the time. Well, Mark, it's, this has been a lot of fun doing this interview, and there's a lot more in your book we didn't get a chance to touch on, uh, but I definitely encourage readers to go out and find a copy of and buy Where the Gods Are, published by Yale University Press 2016. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Onscript.study.